Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the arrest and arraignment on 37 charges of Donald Trump in a Miami courthouse today, along with his body man, Walt Nauta, who has yet to find an attorney, while Trump is scrambling to find representation, with three of his lawyers having quit in the last two weeks. Joining us to discuss how lucky Trump is in having Judge Aileen Cannon hear the case against him is Harry Littman, a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a Professor of Constitutional Law and National Security Law at the University of California, San Diego, and the University of California, Los Angeles. He is the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and the senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Five Ways Judge Eileen Cannon Could Protect Trump from the Classified Documents Prosecution. Then we'll assess the possibility of a hung jury as a result of having just one MAGA Republican juror on the jury and the extent to which Judge Cannon could influence the jury's selection. Joining us is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the Federal Government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as the Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And finally, we go to Tbilisi in the Georgia Republic and speak with Azamat Junisbay, who is a professor of sociology at Pitzer College, a native of Almaty, Kazakhstan. His research interests include social stratification and public opinion about inequality and decolonization in Central Asia. And we will discuss how the former Soviet Union was a colonial power, but managed to portray itself as an anti-colonial champion. And to this day, As Putin tries to recreate the Soviet Union, many in the West still insist the US and NATO are the imperialists, not Russia, which has invaded two of its neighbours and is busy destroying Ukraine. And joining us now is Harry Littman, a former United States attorney who was Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department. He's now a professor of constitutional law and national security law at the University of California, San Diego and the University of California, Los Angeles and he's executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Five Ways Judge Eileen Cannon Could Protect Trump from the Classified Documents Prosecution. Welcome to Background Briefing. Harry. Hey, Ian. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I know you're busy today, as was Donald Trump in the Miami courtroom where he was arraigned before a magistrate And uh, interestingly enough, I was watching the video of when he was leaving, the convoy of SUVs uh, creeped out of the courthouse and turned the corner, and the crowds were able to actually get right up next to Trump's SUV. One of them was uh, dressed as a prisoner in in a black and white striped prison uniform, holding a placard, probably saying something that Trump might not have liked. But on the other side of the street, his followers holding Trump flags and stuff were running along literally beside the SUV. So I was astounded at the lack of security. So did that strike you as problematic? Yeah, it did. You know, they were thoughtful about the uh, arraignment in many respects, but somehow not this. And it's elementary. I've tried 
pretty big cases, but with nowhere near as um, as much, not just focus, but potential for unrest um, and even short of violence. And uh, yes, you have barricades, things are blocked off. Um, you know, you do it for uh, a concert with uh, people of medium popularity. So they, they surely should have. It's lucky nothing bad um, happened. There wasn't the kind of presence at this was true in Manhattan, too, that was so big and worked up for Trump. But still, that shouldn't have happened. I was surprised. So they didn't answer Carrie Lake's call for 75 million NRA members to show up? Not yet. They're still trying to process them, maybe figure out their compensation. (laughs) So we don't know much about what happened, but the fact that the arraignment was closed to the public, I don't know how unusual that is. Is there a possibility that Judge Eileen Cannon could close this trial to the public? Wow, that'd be pretty dramatic. I mean, I think it was wrong to close the arraignment here. There's a presumption, Supreme Court has said, that criminal trials should be open to the public and talk about one with with strong public interest, maybe the, the greatest in history. Now, as we know, there's all kinds of crazy things that Judge Cannon could do. Um, but even so, even this one struck me as wrong. They, of course, they let people in, but they weren't able to have their phones. It was just very cumbersome trying to report and get details out. I think we do know what happened, piecing together from uh, reporters who were in the courtroom and the normal routine for arraignments. And the short answer is not much. Um, but yeah, I think it would be quickly challenged. There are three lawyers who've already um, presented their their credentials, as it were, to the court to represent the media here, and they would certainly run in and fast if she were to try to keep them. You know, it's not there won't be cameras. Still, that's the rule in federal courts. It's a good example of why that rule is controversial. Um, but the ability of the press to really be able to cover things in real time is exigent here. So it would be a mistake uh, for her to close it off. Of course, she makes mistakes. We know that about her. So you know, I don't want to predict, but I can tell you what the law is. It should be it should be open so that people can follow it. But she she clearly made mistakes initially with the special master and delaying it, and she was slapped down by the 11th Circuit. Was there any indication that she learned from those mistakes? I recall that she didn't. Right. I mean, the very dramatic indication was exactly that she didn't, that she doubled down and tried to keep it until they really, you know, had to upbraid her and take it from her. You would think that's the kind of record, many people are saying it is, that would um, leave the 11th Circuit here to uh, yank her because the basic standard is could her impartiality be reasonably be questioned and what the case it's so so important that uh, the presiding judge's impartiality not reasonably be uh, questioned and this not become a circus as Trump would like to make it Unfortunately, um, the even that's the general standard, but as applied in the 11th Circuit where she is, it 
the the cases that have uh, recused or forced judges to remove themselves are have involved even more rank and crass insubordination as opposed to just grievously wrong rulings. So she really, if you think about the law and just think more generally about what's what's best for the country here, it really shouldn't be she. Maybe she'll see that herself. But as I look at the law, you know, my assumption is we're we're stuck with her if she herself doesn't step aside. And Harry Lippman, you have a your most recent column at the Los Angeles Times is five ways Judge Aileen Cannon could protect Trump from the classified documents prosecution. And you end your piece by saying there are nearly 700 federal district judges in the country. Of all of them, Cannon is the first whose fairness might reasonably be questioned. So in given that enormous number of 700, is she really up there in the top in being the most pro-Trump? Because in other words, the question arises, did Trump handpick her because she would be in his jurisdiction? And therefore, it's paid off in the sense that he's got a judge in his jurisdiction. There was no way that the Jack Smith could go forum shopping. So he had to try the case where the crime took place or the alleged crimes took place. And boy, is Trump lucky to have Eileen Cannon. So did he handpick her, do you think? For this reason, let me just start with my claim that might seem stunning about number one, but it's really true. She didn't simply issue pro-Trump rulings. She mangled the law and did cartwheels to favor him. And I think literally others could be as bad, but we haven't seen them before. I think literally she's the, if, if, just for the public good, not to mention the strategy of DOJ, if you could just preclude any judge, just one, from serving, I think it would clearly be she. Now, you know, it's a little bit um, poetic license on my part because the 700 most aren't eligible, but it's it's really true. She's the worst it could that it could be. Did he handpick her because he knew he might uh, down the line need a friendly, uh, even a biased person in Mar-a-Lago? You know, who the hell knows? And it's hard. I've long since kind of given up trying to psychoanalyze or second guess what what Trump is thinking. But the it's not it wasn't quite as crazy a possibility as it might seem because there are different practices within that court that make her a you know put uh, weight on the scale and make made her selection more likely by no means um, preordained but most likely but they just rolled rolled craps or if you're a hearts player they you know drew the queen of spades it was it wasn't uh, certain that it was going to be that way as it was when Trump chose her. Um, but um, they got really unlucky. And you're right. They don't have the venue issue. That's the main reason they decided to relocate. But uh, talk about a booby uh, prize as consolation or talk about a consolation prize for Trump. Um, it's a big, big big one the the jury will ultimately have to make the determination here but man can she make the prosecution's life miserable delay proceedings and really kind of gut the case in important respects it's a 
it's a deeply unfortunate happenstance. And it only takes one juror to get a hung jury right. That's right. So that's the first way she can do it is in, in jury selection. Somebody comes up and says, yes, I know Trump. Yes, I like Trump. And that, you know, there's a little dance that everyone knows who's tried cases where the DOJ will try to say, so you really know and like him, right? And his attorneys will try to say, yes, you like him, but you can really be fair, right? And that will come down to um, to her. Now, I, I want to say that even if there's a hung jury, I have every expectation that the department would retry the case. So uh, what you can do after a hung jury on that on that basis. But now we're, we're certainly um, well past the election um, and or or, you know, in the no matter no matter what we're at that point, say, and so that would restart the clock uh, for a long period of time. And by then, if Trump has been elected, you know, it's the whole thing goes away. And if he hasn't, then, uh, you know, the, that risk has gone away and it proceeds on the normal track. Of course, you know, he turned 77 today and he's got terrible health, et cetera. Would, would the, or notwithstanding what his handpicked doctor said, this is one of my favorite Trumpisms. He actually got a doctor to say he's the most healthy president in the history of the presidency. You know, like somehow the guy had looked at records for John Adams and Abraham Lincoln. But anyway, um, the, you know, at some point he becomes quite old to stand trial. But in any event, um, yeah, it's the 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 prospect of a hung jury is very worrisome, but um, it, the, the U.S. wouldn't give up on it. So this may be a little uh, <laughs> out of your wheelhouse, Harry, but it would seem to me that if if Trump really is in deep trouble and if you read the indictment, which everybody should because it's so extraordinary, it seems like such a strong case and He's guilty of the reckless endangerment of U.S. national security. Uh, and you've got people like Reality Winner rotting in jail, and I don't th know how you could enforce any classification rules in the U.S. government if you didn't make an example of Trump after what we've learned from those indictments. So if he's really in true trouble, couldn't he basically throw his lot behind DeSantis, who would, I assume, be the, the most likely frontrunner if he pulls out? And therefore, on the basis of the promise that DeSantis will uh, will pardon him, other candidates running for the Republican nomination are already saying that they'd pardon him. He could, and he could even cut a, a deal like it. And I don't think uh, DeSantis has to pardon him. By the time the election uh, runs around, let's say DeSantis wins and he took assumes the presidency January 2025, the trial should be well... Uh, over, but he'll still be on appeals. And in that setting, all that would have to happen is the president would order, as I think he could. Uh, it's funky, but and you know, I, I and I'm on record as saying I don't think he could. He, Trump could pardon himself. Yeah, DeSantis could pardon him, but he wouldn't need to. He could just order the Department of Justice to drop the case. Um, and at that point, it's dropped. There's, you know, very little doubt that that's the kind of thing a president can do. And so even if the trial has taken place in all deliberate speed, there are appeals. He's entitled to them. 
And until the appeals and therefore the conviction becomes final uh, with, say, the Supreme Court denying review, um, if you tell the Department of Justice to drop the case, that's it. He'd be out of the woods, I think. So just in the last minute then, Harry Littman, given that Trump has been one step ahead of the sheriff all of his adult right. life, both in business and in politics, it is an extraordinary piece of luck that he has Arlene Cannon presiding over this case. But on the other hand, the indictments came from a Florida grand jury of local citizens who listened to the evidence and came up with some serious, what, 37 charges. So... Are we to have some faith in that, that the fact that local citizens did the right thing and maybe they could do the right thing once Arlene uh, Cannon's jury pool is chosen? I think we should have such confidence. You know, of course, many people have noted that it's hard, a lot easier, both for on substance and just in dynamic, to get an indictment than to get a conviction. But we've had already a couple trials where ardent Trumpistas sat and did the right thing. So I think so, and that is the ultimate and important judgment. But between now and then, there are ways in which Judge Cannon could really kind of um, – uh, if not decimate, really reduce the case, ways in which she could delay, uh, ways, you know, just several ways to pull the rug out from under the department. So making it, it making Trump's defenses stronger or the case weaker. But yes, you know, this is down to a jury. Jack Smith in his, what, 92nd press conference uh, came out of the box with that. And I think there's reason to, um, have confidence that a properly chosen jury will do the right thing. But uh, that still um, gives give some very uh, concrete ways. This is um, the article that you were kind enough to mention up front that she could make it a lot um, harder and um, that that even though it's ultimately their judgment, she curbs the terms of it or takes things away from them and that's a, that are huge boons to Trump. Well, Harold Littman, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Harry Littman, a former United States attorney and deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department. He's now a professor of constitutional law and national security law at the University of California, San Diego, and the University of California, Los Angeles, and the executive producer and host of the Talking Feds podcast and a senior legal affairs columnist at the Los Angeles Times, where his latest article is Five Ways Judge Eileen Cannon Could Protect Trump from the Classified Documents Prosecution. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the possibility of a hung jury as a result of having just one MAGA Republican on the jury. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a Senior Advisor in all three branches of the Federal Government, a Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, a Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division of the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And Donald Trump was arraigned today before a federal magistrate in Miami. And he, of course, pled not guilty, or at least his lawyer did on his behalf. But he's been he's been having some serious problems getting lawyers. Three of his uh, lawyers just quit in the last uh, couple of weeks. And it doesn't seem like he really has even a B team here. What's your sense of what kind of legal representation Trump is cobbling together here at the last minute. Well, um, as a as a lawyer myself, I can imagine that um, it would be very difficult for someone to agree to represent him because uh, of the nature of this um, of this uh, indictment, which says that he was trying to encourage his lawyers to break the law themselves and also uh, manipulated uh, a false statement to the federal government, which is itself a potential crime. And so um, I think he's going to have trouble finding uh, a great lawyer um, because of his conduct that is um, has been uh, at least demonstrated based on the evidence that the grand jury heard in Florida. So, um, yeah, he's going to have a hard time finding a, finding a really good attorney to defend him with his track record. Well, he, <laughs> he doesn't have a really good attorney defending him, but he's got a really good judge who's shown unbelievable sympathy towards him earlier on after the uh, FBI managed to get the documents out of there and Judge Aileen Cannon went to all kinds of lengths to protect and help Trump and delay things with the special master. So, I mean, I see that as uncanny luck on his part, but how bad is Judge Cannon? Is she really in the bag well, I'm very concerned about her behavior. Um, I think that under the Code of Conduct uh, for United States judges, which has a standard for um, whether a judge um, either has an appearance of bias or actual bias, I think she should recuse herself. And if not, I, I think the 11th Circuit should require her recusal. However, um, those recusal standards are typically um, enforced by the judge themselves. And in this case, you have someone who um, is very young, who was basically plucked from obscurity by Trump himself for this plum position in the U.S. District Court near Miami, the one that's nearest to his um, uh, home and resort. Um, and she's someone who, as you point out, Ian, uh, behaved so poorly uh, with such bias and putting her thumb on the scale of justice to such an extreme that the 11th Circuit, which is one of the most conservative or right-wing uh, judicial circuits in the country, uh, in a three-judge panel, all of whom were uh, Republican appointees, rebuked her sharply for her behavior earlier on in this case when she attempted to basically rewrite the law to favor Trump. So she's, I think, a terrible judge. She never should have been confirmed uh, to a lifetime position on the federal court. I'm very curious about why she was chosen by Trump. I think she's biased, and I think she has no business trying this case. So given there are 700 federal district judges in the country— how would you rate her in terms of being pro-Trump? Is she perhaps the most pro-Trump judge on the federal bench, or is she close to the most? 
Well, it's hard to say because not everyone has had a chance to have a case with him yet, although he's had many cases. But in terms of the judges who have uh, heard cases involving Trump, she is certainly the worst. Um, there are other judges who were also appointed by, by Trump who should not have been confirmed. For example, the judge in Texas who lied about um, you know, his uh, role in anti-choice, anti-abortion activities, the one who try, is trying to ban the FDA uh, from allowing women access to medical or chemical abortion. Um, he's biased and a, I think a terrible judge as well, uh, should never been confirmed. But certainly um, from my perspective, from the number of cases that have gone before federal courts so far, and even state courts, Eileen Cannon is the worst. And she is someone who, I, as I said, through her actual actions as a sitting judge earlier on in this case, showed that she is unworthy of trust and the type of respect we need to have um, in a court in order to have confidence in the judgment and the result of the trial to come. But what can happen then to get rid of her? In other words, if she's in charge of recusing herself, and if she's as partisan as we suspect, she's not going to recuse herself. So what other mechanism can get her to step down? Well, it's, it's she, so there are a couple of uh, processes. One is she can recuse herself at any time. Um, the Department of Justice could ask for her recusal, um, and it could ask for that recusal also at almost any time, not, not uh, really once the trial is started necessarily, but that would be a rare circumstance for sure. Um, but um, it's also the case that um, as these um, cases, as these, these parts of this case may go up on appeal uh, before the trial um, proceeds, um, what's called interlocutory appeal, um, it's possible that the 11th Circuit could um, suggest perhaps that she not proceed with this case, although that would be a very rare, um, a very, a rare, very rare uh, circumstance as well. Um, I'm not sure I can think of a precedent for that happening, although I, I know that there have been findings of bias before um, by a, a, an appellate panel. So that could also um, happen. I do think um, if she if she were, um, you know, had any concern for her reputation, which I don't know that she actually has, she would get herself off of this case because um, she she really showed that she was not fit to rule impartially. Uh, about the man who appointed her. And it's not the case that in every time you have to recuse yourself just because you were appointed by a president. But in this instance, we have actual practical information about how this woman, this uh, judge behaved toward Trump in trying to tilt the scale of justice in his favor on a previous round here. So Lisa Graves, when you say that Trump handpicked her because she was in the jurisdiction where his home and his Mar-a-Lago club or whatever you want to call it is, which is where all the documents have been hidden, although there's probably some at Bedminster that we don't know about. And of course, just as we go to air, Trump is going to be broadcasting his uh, grievance outbursts from today's activities from uh, Bedminster. So just fill us in on, on how she was chosen, whether it was she was literally chosen by Trump because he wanted to have a sympathetic judge in his jurisdiction, or was she just a part of the Federalist lists and Leonard Leo's wish list? Well, we don't know for sure, and we probably won't know for a number of years um, uh, about that particular process for her selection, but what's clear is that um, he did nominate her. Uh, she was someone who had a relatively indistinguished record, so someone put her forward as, um, as a good uh, person for, for Trump to choose. 
uh, it could have been Leonard Leo, it could have been Ties Metal Society, but we don't know for certain. What we know is that is that um, you know Trump has taken a very particular interest in who the personnel are um, in his jurisdiction. So we could we saw that he you know tried to remove um, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York um, at one point. We know that he removed uh, the FBI director, basically fired the FBI director. We know that he um, thought to change who who was the attorney general in order to favor himself. And so it would be highly unlikely that Trump did not know who he was choosing to be a judge in the very district and, in fact, in the very geographic location where he lived part of the time. It would seem highly likely that he would be choosing someone who he thought he could count on to be on his side. And as you'll recall, at one point, uh, Trump expressed um, concern for the U.S. Supreme Court because he thought he called them my judges, his appointees. And so he may not have paid attention to a lot of things in his presidency in terms of in terms of uh, the details of policy, but he paid attention to personnel because personnel is policy. And so I feel relatively confident in saying it's highly likely that he knew exactly who he was getting when he chose Eileen Cannon for the bench right there in his uh, part of his uh, uh, residence. So, Lisa, we know that Jack Smith has made it really clear in his brief remarks that he made last week that he wants this trial to be a speedy trial. So what can she do to slow it down so that it takes place after the 2024 elections? Well, part of what part of what would happen would be that his attorneys would make a, a number of motions or strategically timed motions, some of which are allowed to be appealed before trial takes place rather than after trial takes place. It's also the case that judges have a lot of discretion, uh, whether they're good judges or biased judges, in terms of setting the schedule uh, for a trial. And in this instance, uh, because of the, the seriousness of these charges, the evidence that a, a grand jury of you know, fellow citizens in Florida found was sufficient to charge Trump with 37 crimes, uh, felonies that include uh, sentences on each, on each um, crime of potentially 10 to 20 years in prison each, as well as uh, fines of up to $250,000. In this case, um, the, the special prosecutor um, noted that this trial would take approximately 21 days. That's their estimate in terms of trying to present this evidence to uh, a jury. Um, but he could push that uh, trial back quite a bit. And, and the, um, the, the uh, former president, Donald Trump, could, in essence, waive a speedy trial right and try to extend it further. And so she certainly can do a lot of damage to the integrity of our justice system by manipulating those processes to try to help him uh, win the election. Uh, and I, I'm very concerned about her um, actions based on the, you know, the extraordinary actions she took earlier in this case. And what could she do in terms of jury selection? Could she sort of favor the jury with pro-Trump sympathizers? Well, I think that the problem that we're likely to see is whether people who are called for that jury are going to be truthful about lacking um, an opinion or having bias for or against him. And there's certainly potential uh, for someone to get through the jury selection process who actually is in the tank for Trump to try to cause, you know, a hung jury. Um, and the judge doesn't have as, you know, uh, the, the judge doesn't have total control over that because those matters in terms of the jury are um, handled through challenges that um, either either the defense attorney or the prosecutors can make 
to a particular juror sitting. And there is a lot of leeway for those uh, for people to remove to be recused, in essence, from sitting on the jury. But I think that through her actions, through her words, she could certainly indicate bias. And she could also try to make some rulings that make it difficult for the prosecution, in part because um, the type of material at issue here, nuclear secrets, secrets that are seen or meant to be seen only by our closest allies in the surveillance arena, uh, the, the leaders of the countries of the United, of United Kingdom or Canada or, or New Zealand, um, serious information about, about um, war plans or preparations for our defense. These are matters that um, the prosecutor is going to need rulings by this judge to protect the nature of those secrets from further disclosure. And she could try to make it difficult for them to do so in a way that um, tries to uh, uh, that sort of tilts that that uh, the notion of justice in Trump's favor to try to make it more difficult for this case to proceed. So could she suppress Evan Corcoran, uh, the lawyer that first uh, Trump first hired, who Trump told basically, you know, let's <laughs> can we not even reply to the uh, DOJ? He said he obviously lied to, to Evan Corcoran and then immediately turned around and got his body man, Walt Nauta, to move the boxes so that Evan Corcoran couldn't find the incriminating boxes, including the box that they refer to as Beautiful Mind paper box. So is that possible, that she could limit uh, what is it admissible under federal rules of evidence? Well, the federal rules of evidence, um, you know, certainly they're administered by the trial judge, but there is review by the appellate court. Um, and in this instance, uh, where you have um, an attorney who uh, a, a client was suggesting commit a crime, that's the sort of thing that pierces the typical attorney-client privilege. And so in general, lawyers you know, can't reveal the confidences of their clients, but it's also one of the longstanding rules of the ethical canons for, for lawyers that they cannot uh, participate in a crime, participate in a crime with their client or suborn perjury aid the, you know, deception to the court. And so she would be on very thin ice, in my view, in t- trying to restrict uh, that testimony or that evidence, because that's such a clear and long-standing rule. However, based on her activities, the things that she did in the first phase of this um, case around this, the seizure of the documents, um, I would not be surprised if she attempted to try to thwart um, that sort of information from being presented to the jury. But I don't think that the 11th Circuit uh, judges, given um, the nature of these sorts of precedents, would allow her to do so. But it could cause delay. And could she give jury instructions to the jury that would would uh, tip the balance? All you need is one Trumpster on the jury and uh, he gets acquitted. Well, the challenge, well, it it would be more likely to be a, a hung jury versus an acquittal. But. Um, I think that the, the, the jury instructions are certainly in the province of uh, the trial judge to finalize those and issue them, but it's also the case that there are long-standing rules for appealing um, instructions that are faulty um, or that, you know, are, are, you know, incorrect or, you know, maybe uh, uh, biased in some way. The problem, so the problem in a certain sense is less of a legal problem because that can certainly be appealed. It would be the public damage of if that were the case, if there were um, a problem with the jury instructions that were not, that you couldn't appeal, which is typically the case, you can't appeal those on an interlocutory basis in general, um, then you could have a result in the public arena 
while an appeal is pending, um, which would be, you know, very problematic, uh, very challenging. Um, and so, you know, I think that's, you know, just another reason why it would be, you know, extremely important for our justice system to ensure that we have a judge trying this case who is above, you know, or beyond reproach, whose ethics and whose lack of bias is clear um, and not leave it in the hands of someone whose judgment is so questionable and has already been and has already been reversed um, previously based on her um, uh, in, in, inaccurate um, application of the law or invention of new theories um, as she did earlier in this case. So just uh, in the last couple of minutes then, Lisa, what could she fail to do in terms of, of curbing Trump's outbursts? I mean, he's already called Jack Smith a deranged and a thug. And if she allows him to continue to spend, he's obviously, you know, after, after we broadcast this, he's going to be talking to the nations via at Bedminster. Clearly, I'm sure there's no way he's going to restrain himself, be attacking the prosecution and the DOJ and the Biden and saying this whole thing is a political witch hunt and they're just trying to take out the leading Republican candidate. And this is all Joe Biden trying to make sure that he doesn't run against me and all, you know, riling up the people, which is what he's been doing. And I can't see him stopping doing that. So is she going to do anything about curbing him so that he doesn't prejudice the jury pool? Well, if she were a good judge or, or wanted to have um, uh, follow the typical rules uh, and typical practices of judges, she would do so. You could see that in the civil trial uh, involving um, uh, Jean Carroll and uh, the case involving uh, uh, Trump's defamation of her and how closely the judge in that case in New York um, and, and, you know, admonished Trump in terms of his statements about that case um, as, as the case was coming to trial and then pending. Um, but those are orders by the judge. And so she, um, she might not take the same tack as the judge in New York in terms of trying to protect uh, the integrity of the justice system and try to protect the jury, the jury, potential jurors from bias. Um, you know, we'll see very soon how she responds. Um, to his uh, his track record, his you know the, what he's about to do right almost now, um, as well as in the weeks ahead in terms of his attack on the prosecutor, his attack on the justice our, our justice system. Um, so she um, she has some discretion in that arena in terms of how she handles um, a defendant um, who um, might take this tack and will take this tack and try to raise money on it as well as Trump is doing um, right now. Uh, but those those are all things that are within her discretion to um, help uh, administer justice. And I don't have confidence that she will be a fair judge. Um, I'm not saying she'll be unfair in all of her rulings. I just don't have confidence that she has. She will be unbiased toward Trump, given her track record. Well, Lisa Graves, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. Thanks for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as deputy chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into how the former Soviet Union was a colonial power, but managed to portray itself as an anti-colonial champion. And to this day, as Putin tries to recreate the Soviet Union, many in the West still insist that the US and NATO are the imperialists, not Russia. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Tbilisi in the Republic of Georgia is Azamat Junusbay, who is a professor of sociology at Pitsa College. He's a native of Almaty, Kazakhstan, and his research interests include social stratification and public opinion about inequality and decolonization in Central Asia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Azamat Junusbay. Thank you so much for having me. So since you're in the Republic of Georgia, right up against Chechnya and uh, Russia, and a lot of Russians, particularly draft-age men, have left Russia to avoid the draft and the war in Ukraine, what's the mood in uh, Georgia? Because I understand the, the Georgian leader now is very, very much in the mold of Putin. He's tried to corral the press and introduced Russian-style media control and censorship. He seems to be more in the in the mold of Viktor Orban in Hungary than any of the other leaders, uh, particularly from former Soviet states. You know, um, I do not presume to be an expert on Georgian politics, of course, but I do have a few observations just from you know being physically being here and comparing this with uh you know the last couple months i've been in almaty in kazakhstan in georgia the support the level of support for ukraine seems to be higher or at least more visible right uh i'm i was struck or i'm struck by the number of ukrainian flags or sort of anti-russian graffiti that is just all over the place in Tbilisi. That's simply not the case uh, in Central Asia, even though I think for many Central Asians, their sympathies are very much with Ukrainians and, you know, they do not side with Russia. But in Georgia, yeah, despite the fact that the current government clearly has a pro-Russian bent, the ability to express support for Ukraine seems to be much greater than in Central Asia. But there were demonstrations fairly recently where Georgians were demonstrating in front of the parliament in huge numbers, and they were carrying EU flags. And it sort of was reminiscent of what happened in 2014 in uh, Kiev, in Ukraine, where the people wanted to join the EU and the government, which was with Manafort and uh, and the Russians with enormous influence over Yanukovych, you know, basically pulled the plug on that idea. And then you had the Maidan uprising and then it led to the Russian invasion of Crimea and the ongoing war escalated. And we've got to the point now where we have a full-scale war. So is there a connection there? One of the things that I, I find frustrating about Americans and uh, other Europeans on the political left who have become apologists for Putin in the name of peace is that they don't seem to understand that what Putin offers is gangster government and that 
peoples of the former Soviet states don't want gangster government. They would prefer to have the rule of law and be more integrated with Europe than with Russia. Isn't that pretty clear? Yes, no, that's very, very true. And I think the fact that there were large-scale demonstrations here in Georgia shows that people are nervous, right, about the sort of perceived pivoting toward Russia, right, that's going on under the current government. Um, I've heard from folks repeatedly here on the ground saying, you know, we are a European country, our future is with Europe. And they're nervous about being pulled sort of closer into the Russian orbit. But again, you know, it's anecdotal, but, you know, I had several people tell me, well, 20% of our country is occupied by Russia, right? So there is really not a lot of love for Russia in Georgia at all. But, you know, that is not necessarily reflected, I suppose, in the policies of the current government. Well, let's talk about what you've been writing on Twitter as a much as by, uh, which I found very interesting. Uh, you've written that Russia has, uh, and the Soviet Union before that, have successfully obscured the reality of the Soviet Union as a ruthless colonial power. It's, and that has got to be one of the most astonishing propaganda accomplishments in modern history, and simultaneously one of the most consequential and problematic legacies of the USSR. And it is going back again to the political left in both Europe and in the United States that essentially support Putin uh, in the name of peace. Their focus has always been the the American empire and in particular the expansion of NATO eastward. But the long and the short of it is that the Soviet Union was a colonial power, was it not? And uh, you, obviously growing up in Kazakhstan, know that all too well. Absolutely. I think it's striking. Uh, You know, I'm in my sort of late 40s now, right? And I think the war, especially for me personally, just exposed a lot of the lies, a lot of the propaganda, a lot of ways of thinking that I think were so deeply internalized by everyone, where, you know, when we grew up, we just thought of the, you know, Soviet Union, uh, as, you know, uh, I guess or we were taught to think of it as, you know, this big, great country, Moscow, you know, helping everyone achieve progress and all that. But, you know, looking back, it really was uh, an empire, right? And it was a very much a colonial uh, relationship, right, where extraction of resources um, was taking place, where all the decisions were being made in Moscow, where in case of Kazakhstan, or more specifically, even in my own family, it got to the point where even the language itself, Kazakh language. So in my family, going back a couple of generations, people began to lose Kazakh language because the only way to, you know, have social mobility was to, to be a Russian speaker. Right. And so I think there is a realization or re- rethinking of a lot of the legacy of the Soviet Union that's happening now that's been brought on by the full-on invasion in, in, in Ukraine. And um, it's striking to me, yes, when you hear a lot of folks who identify as leftists and progressive, right, who have often valid criticisms of U.S. foreign policy, who seem to be completely blind to the fact that Moscow was very much a colonial power that did a lot of horrible things, right? In Kazakhstan, it was nuclear testing, It was the famine. There were all kinds of absolutely atrocious things that were done, but that doesn't seem to matter. Or a lot of these same folks will also justify 
what China is doing or will try to minimize what China is doing to Kazakhs and Uyghurs in Xinjiang, right? And that makes, it's hard for me, honestly, to, to, to think about it just because if someone really does care about social justice and, and you know, and, and has these ideals, then why they wouldn't care about the plight of these people, I do not understand. I mean, I suppose ignorance is the easiest explanation or that they're so passionate about, you know, criticizing the American empire that no other empire seems to matter. But it seems that it's not that hard to understand that, you know, there could be more than one bad actor or more than one empire at the same time. Well, but the strangest thing is that I'm not suggesting that the apologists for Putin, who in the name of peace are basically suggesting that the Ukrainians should simply stop fighting and accept some kind of Russian deal. And we know that Putin, he has a a completely atavistic idea of restoring the Soviet Union and restoring the empire. He's made it really clear. Uh, He's described the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in history. In his long essay, before he invaded Ukraine, uh, he made it clear that he doesn't think Ukraine is a real country. It really is a part of Russia, has been and will be and forever be a part of Russia. And he has no interest in, in peace. It's pretty clear that he believes that he can wait this whole thing out, wear out the Ukrainians and eventually take over Ukraine. So I don't know. For the life of me, I don't understand why anybody on the left, either in the United States or in Europe, thinks that Putin is some kind of Marxist? I mean, for God's sake, the guy's a fascist. It's obvious. It um, makes sense to me, honestly. I, I, I have to agree. Yeah. The, the fact that they would see anything good about what Putin is doing is mind-boggling. Um, I think it's just, yeah, perhaps just being so blinded by their passion of sort of, you know, exposing the U.S. empire that they, you know, neglect to see what's right in front of them in terms of what Moscow has been doing or what Beijing is doing. And that's just wrong. That's just wrong. There is no uh, no other way for me to put it. I, I'd like to think that it's ignorance, that if only they knew, if somehow they knew, maybe they wouldn't say that. But I, I suppose, as you suggested, it's out in the open. It's not exactly a secret. So I don't really have a good explanation for why they have these positions. But it's a position that reflects a lot of the attitude in the global south that are more on Russia's side and less on Ukraine's side. And even in Israel, by the way, and Zelensky's Jewish, his parents live in Israel. Uh, Mm -hmm. The right-wing Israeli government is is not really supporting Ukraine, and they have a lot of weaponry and defense weaponry like the Iron Dome that the Ukrainians would love to have. So that's very puzzling. But when you think about leaders like the leader just to the south of us in Mexico, uh-huh. um, AMLO, and then uh, Lula in uh, Brazil, I uh-huh. mean, they're all, they also have that sort of residue of, of Marxist dogma. And they must somehow think that this whole thing is, again, the American empire, which they clearly have uh, <laughs> had some problems with, shall we say, but they don't see what you see as a former citizen of the Soviet Empire. And, and that's what I find puzzling. Yeah, I think it's one of the possibly the biggest successes of Moscow, right? That they somehow managed to erase 
our voices, right? That the voices of the colonized, voices of those who were part of the Soviet empire uh, were mostly absent. And I think maybe just because our voices haven't been heard enough. And it's true that I think, you know, during the Soviet Union proper, uh, they did provide a lot of support to a lot of the countries in the global south in opposition, not necessarily because they deeply cared about them, but in opposition to Washington. And I think there is sort of residual goodwill from that. And, um, you know, those are facts. We can't really change that. But but that it somehow blinds them to what Russia has been doing to Ukrainians or Central Asians or, you know, their own folks in Siberia. Yakuts or Tuvans or Buryats, it does not excuse it. It's it's uh, quite awful. Well, but that's those are the very minorities from Russia itself that are being sent into the meat grinder in Ukraine, and they're dying in droves. I mean, there were between between ten and fifteen thousand Russian soldiers were drowned by the blowing up of that dam. And the, and, the, and the blowing up of the dam was done by the Russians, but apparently they screwed it up. They meant to do it a little bit of an explosion first to give them a warning to get out, then blow up the main explosive charge later, and they, apparently they screwed it up. So these are the very regions from which the, these yeah. kids are being thrown yeah, into Ukraine and dying well, in well, droves. Yeah, as as a sociologist, uh, it's 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 hard for me not to notice that the folks who are being sent, you know, to war from Russia disproportionately are the ethnic minorities, right? Or they are the very very poor, and you know, the more affluent people from St. Petersburg or Moscow, their children are for the most part safe, and it allows Putin to keep doing this, right? Because they are essentially using like you said, putting people in the meat grinder, but most of them are not middle-class Russian. Most of them are from far, far away provinces and not even ethnically Russian, right? Which is, again, a very colonial thing to do, I guess. Right. Well, Putin had the leaders of the former Soviet states in the so-called stands, including Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, did the, did the leader of Kazakhstan go to Victory Day Parade? Because uh, that was all he could muster was get a few of them, and now the leader of Armenia is less and less inclined to support Putin, although he needs Putin because Azerbaijan is at war with them and mm-hmm. blockading them, blockading the enclave in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So what's the relationship now between the leaders of the former Soviet states in the, in the stands and Putin? Well, I think... Um... Just geographically looking at the map, Kazakhstan in the most, is in the most vulnerable position, right? Just because Kazakhstan and Russia share a, an incredibly long border. Uh, it's either the second or the, 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 the largest, the longest border in the world, land border in the world. And so, uh, you know, no leader in Kazakhstan can afford to ignore Russia or to blow Putin off. It's just something that would be incredibly dangerous. And Kazakhstan's entire population is less than 20 million. Right, so it's less than half of Ukraine's, and so they uh, they have to play along to an extent. But at the same time, Kazakhstan did say that they're not recognizing the separatist republics, right, and they're refusing to provide any kind of uh, military assistance, and supposedly cooperating even with the sanctions. Uh, how effectively is a different question, but um, yeah, but you know, 
it's a little bit easier, I believe, for those Central Asian countries that do not share a border with Russia. But yeah, Kazakhstan is in a vulnerable position for sure. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Adamat, mm-hmm. do you think that the countries like Kazakhstan will get more and more into the, chi- in the, into the Chinese orbit? Uh, and particularly if, if Russia gets more and more bogged down and loses the war in Ukraine, and there's likely to be, that would probably be the end of Putin, and God knows mm-hmm. what kind of government would succeed him since there's nobody much left in terms of liberal Russia, that's all. That's a thing mm-hmm. of the past. So you're, mm-hmm. you're going to have people like Petrushev and others who are just completely ins- insane nationalists taking yeah. over, or even worse, Prigozhin. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I specifically for Kazakhstan, it, Kazakhstan is an incredibly tricky neighborhood, right? So you have Russia in the north, you have China in the south, China is doing unspeakable things to Kazakhs and Uyghurs, uh, you know, in Xinjiang. And so falling under China's thumb is not a good solution either. And it's something that a lot of people in Kazakhstan would be very much opposed to. Uh, in Kazakhstan, you know, people talk about the multi-vector foreign policy. Easier said than done, of course. But, you know, trying to cooperate closely with the U.S., with Europeans, with Asia, with China, with Russia, and sort of counterbalancing them against each other. Because uh, f- becoming too dependent or too closely tied to uh, Russia is horrible. Uh, becoming, you know, dependent on China entirely is not that much better, I'm afraid, uh, considering what they're doing in uh, Xinjiang. But, um, yeah, I think they've been trying, you know, with some degree of success to sort of keep this balance in between these great uh, countries, and we'll see what happens going forward. Well, I thank you for joining us from Tbilisi and Republic of Georgia, Azamat Junisbar. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Azamat Junisbar. He's a professor of sociology at Pitsa College. He's a native of Almaty, Kazakhstan. And his research interests include social stratification and public opinion about inequality and decolonization in Central Asia. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.